And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. Hello, and welcome to the Force 5 Podcast. I'm your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg. Tonight's guest is musician J-Zone. I am a big J-Zone fan from way back, but his current project, The Do-Rights, is something really special, and I urge you to go check out his music, their music. He's one half of The Do-Rights. Just really great stuff. Now, it's always a little concerning when somebody jumps on the show and says they're not a big movie fan right off the bat, but... For what general movie knowledge J-Zone may lack, he makes up for with his passion around a specific subset of movies, and I think that's the beauty of this show. You don't need to have worked at a blockbuster video and have seen every film coming out to come up with an enticing list topic. All you need is five, and J-Zone brings a great list to the table, just a, a really fun person to talk to, a really good personality, and really passionate about his five choices. So I'm excited for you to listen to the conversation that we had. Since I last talked at you, I've watched a lot of TV, so I'm going to toss a couple of recommendations your way, and then I have one movie that I'd like to remind people to watch from 2011. Uh, first up is the new Netflix show Murderville with Will Arnett. So how do I even describe Murderville? It's like part scripted comedy show and part improvisational murder mystery show. Will Arnett plays Terry Seattle, a homicide detective, and each episode there's a murder, and he's assigned a new celebrity partner to help solve the crime. Now, the, the cool thing about this show is that Will Arnett has a script, but the guests do not have a script. So they go and they interview three suspects each show, and the partner is just kind of winging it as Arnett's putting them through the ringer. And at the end of each episode, the guest has to proclaim who they think committed the murder and why. It's a really inventive show with a wide variety of guests. The, the first one is Conan O'Brien, and he obviously is a trained comedian. He is hilarious. It's amazing. It's a blast just watching he and Will Arnett go back and forth trying to make each other crack. But the quality of each show kind of lands on the guests. Ex-Seattle Seahawks running back Marshawn Lynch is the guest in the second episode, and I thought that was a bit of an odd choice considering he doesn't really have a background in improv comedy. But other guests include uh, Kumail Nanjiani, Sharon Stone, and Ken Jeong. I love the concept, and if you like Arnett or improv comedy, I really recommend this show. I think it's really funny. I also started watching the new Amazon Prime series Reacher. I am a big fan of Jack Reacher. I read a, I've read a couple of the books. I, I love the first movie, even though Tom Cruise didn't really fit the Reacher mold at all. And the second Jack Reacher movie might be one of the worst sequels ever made, in my opinion. So going into this show, I went in with very few expectations, but I actually think the show is quite good. I've only seen a few episodes so far, but it's about Jack Reacher. He steps foot into this small town of Musgrave in Georgia, and he's almost instantly accused of murder. But once he's cleared, he finds out that he does have a connection to the murder and starts helping police find out what's going on. Reacher is played in this version by Alan Richson, and he's almost exactly how I'd pictured Jack Reacher. This man is a beast. Like he just, he's like six foot six, dwarfs everybody on screen. His arms are huge. It's just magnificent seeing this guy. He looks like a professional wrestler. And uh, in terms of his character, I actually like his clinical look at conversation. It seems really stilted, but just 
really um, accurate for the Jack Reacher character. The fight scenes are well shot. They're brutal. I think it's the first episode, possibly the second episode, where a guy gets a thumb straight through his eyeball. And the supporting cast is pretty interesting, too. So I'll be sticking with this one to see where it goes. But I think Amazon's off to a good start here. And the last thing I want to mention is just kind of an aside. Uh, it's a, a sitcom that I'm sure most people have heard of and probably seen called New Girl. My wife is a big fan of New Girl, and she's been watching while we're in bed at night, while I've been working on some scripts and stuff. So I'm sitting there, I'm writing in the background, and I find myself watching more of the show than I originally wanted to. And it's it's a sitcom, so it's one of those things where I really didn't want to admit it, but this show is hilarious. I love this show. Uh, everybody in the cast has great chemistry. It's really well-written comedy, but the character of Schmidt, played by Max Greenfield, is one of the funniest characters I've seen on TV in a long time. And I don't know what it is about him, but I, I, I feel like Greenfield is kind of a comedic genius in how he pronounces words, how he moves on screen. He honestly reminds me of a more refined young Jim Carrey. He's just really, really funny. And I don't know why he doesn't have more work in movies. He's been in movies. He was in, he was the brother in, um, they came together. He's, you know, he's been in movies, but he does a lot of TV stuff. He's just, God, he's so funny. So that's the bulk of what I've been watching lately. A lot of TV, but I did recently rewatch a film that I haven't seen since I saw it in theaters in 2011, directed by Adam Wingard and written by Simon Barrett. It's called You're Next. I just want you all to know how much it means to us that you're all here. Thanks to mom and dad. Beautiful. Just a perfect day. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy food and help us to do our part with kind words and loving deeds. Amen. Amen. It gets dark, we go home. In Your Next, a family heads to their summer home in the middle of nowhere to celebrate mom and dad's 35th anniversary. The gathering is interrupted by a few madmen wearing animal masks and all hell breaks loose. It's movies like this that make me thankful I have a short movie memory because I only remembered a few small pieces of it. After a very well done opening murder, we get to the crux of the film. A gathering at a huge mansion in the middle of the woods. There are a bunch of people who come to celebrate this anniversary of the parents, Aubrey and Paul, which, as I'm watching it, made me think that the body count was going to be immense, and of course it is. The first person to arrive is their son Crispin and his Australian girlfriend Erin. Next is his brother Drake and his wife Kelly, their daughter Amy and her boyfriend Tariq, and finally their other son Felix and his mysterious girlfriend Z. The strength of Your Next lies in its characters, and the way those characters subvert typical genre expectations. The core of this is Sharni Vincent's character, Aaron. Now, in a typical horror film, the final girl is either running around like a chicken with its head cut off for the entire film, or, in the last third of the film, finally musters up the strength to fight back. It's the tried-and-true formula we've seen in horror films for decades. 
In your next, however, when the shit hits the fan, Aaron jumps into survival mode feet first. Close up the windows, grab something sharp, know your exits, set up traps, and when you have a bad guy down on the ground, you bash his fucking brains in until you know he's dead. This is a refreshing change of pace for a horror damsel, and this switch almost makes it feel like a thrilling action movie versus a true horror film. Now, Your Next is really well made. It was shot mostly with handheld cameras to get you right into the action, and sometimes in movies this bothers me. It did not bother me here. I also thought the sound design was great. From thumps on the floor to the crushing of broken glass, everything just sounds fantastic. The set design is really cool, and we get a decent knowledge of the space, although the house appears to be a lot bigger from the outside than what we actually venture into on the, on the inside on screen. The character design of the intruders is really great too. These black militia outfits with blank white animal masks, it is unsettling. And of course, what's a horror film without gore? This film, like I said, has a big body count and some of them die in pretty brutal ways. Axes to the head, throats cut, arrows, knives, plenty of creative deaths here. And I mean, how can I forget the blender? Yeah, a blender comes into play at some point. Your Next is not going for a serious tone. It's having fun with its premise, and when that blender enters the mix, it's terribly apparent. You'll probably see some of the twists coming, but it's so much fun that you probably won't care. It successfully plays with your expectations of a home invasion movie and blends horror, action, and traps into a fulfilling hour and a half. Can't recommend Your Next enough. And after you watch Your Next, go watch Wingard's follow-up to that, The Guest, which I've talked about on this show before, but I fucking love The Guest. Just a, a really exciting young filmmaking duo there. All right, it's just about time to get our musical genius, J-Zone, on the program. But first, today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Repet. Welcome to Repet, where love means no surprises. Your pet doesn't want to break your heart. Thanks to Repet, he doesn't have to. We can clone your four-legged loved one in just a few short hours. How can we do it? It all begins with the growing of blanks. Animal drones stripped of all characteristic DNA in embryonic tanks at the Repet factory. In stage two, your pet's DNA is extracted from a lock of fur or a drop of blood and then infused on a cellular level into the blank. In the final stage, using Repet's patented cerebral syncording process, all of your pet's thoughts, memories, and instincts are painlessly transplanted via the optic nerve. It's important to have your pet syncorded on a regular basis, and we'll do the syncording free at any Repet store. But if you've lost a pet that hasn't been syncorded, in most cases we can still take a post-mortem syncording within 12 hours of your pet's demise. Your clone pet is exactly the same as he was before right down to the DNA. With all training and memories intact, you and your child will never know the difference. But that's not all. Repet includes many different options to make your new pet even better than your old one. Upgrades include making your clone pet hypoallergenic, making your new clone bigger or smaller, and can even change the colors and markings on your pet to match your current decorating scheme. Welcome to Repet, where love means no surprises. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Force 5. Tonight, I'm joined by Jay Mumford, He's one half of the funk band The Do-Rights alongside Pablo Martin, has drum break records that have been sampled by some of the best producers in hip-hop, and to top it all off, he's the author of a book. Jay, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for coming on. Obviously, I've told you this in emails and stuff, but I'm a big fan 
from long ago. Um, just a couple years ago, your music was used as kind of a de facto score in the documentary Rock Rubber 45s. Yeah, um, and I, just before we get started, what was that experience like? Well, I always say uh, Bobito Garcia is always, whenever I do something, he's always the first person to put it out there. So we're going to go back, like if you go back to like 1999, my very first live performance as a hip hop artist was on his, uh, his night at the New Rican Poets Cafe. I had never performed live <laughs> nice. before. I had never played live. And then that, my first show was on his showcase. The first time my music was ever available for sale was in his store, which was called Bobito's Footwork, which was the old Fat Beats in the East Village. And my first album EP was on sale there because my old college buddy, DJ Ellie Escobar, got a job there after he graduated. He graduated before me. So, you know, and then uh, when I started, when I left uh, the hip hop career for a while, I left music for a while. I covered basketball, high school sports, because I was really big into New York City high school basketball. And uh, my first published article as a sports writer was in Bobito's Bounce magazine in 2006. Um, 2005, actually. 2000, yeah, around that time. And then when I became a drummer uh, and started up with the Do-Rights, uh, our first uh, work-for-hire thing was for Rock Rubber 45s, which was his autobiographical kind of like... Uh, movie you know it was yeah. a doc documentary about his life and the theme song is the do rights we we composed the song that's me playing drums and organ pablo's on bass and guitar and then he went and got the legendary eddie palmieri and robert glasper to play keyboards on it so <laughs> we, i remember he was told me that i was driving i had to pull over to the side of the road uh when he told me that and then it had dj rob swift who's of course uh a legendary DJ. He did cuts and then DJ Drez is a percussionist. Maria Ramos is a violinist. So we just had this all-star uh, cast of musicians and, and artists on it. And um, so like that, that was like, you know, I wish the record had done a little bigger and Breakbeat Lou, the almighty Breakbeat Lou who did the ultimate breaks and beats series back in the eighties, the legendary ultimate breaks and beats. He was the, he mixed it. He was the mix engineer. So oh, you had all these people I admire on one record. The record wasn't immensely popular. It just, with all that, I thought it was going to blow us through the roof, but a lot of that just has to do with, it was a long record. It was mostly instrumental, but it was a great opportunity, man. And, um, you know, I always, everything I've ever done, Papito was the first person to put it out there. So, uh, man, that's that was so cool. Yeah, for Do Rights, getting out there, working with other people, that was a first for us. That's awesome. And look, the Do Rights are an amazing funk band. I'm going to have the link to the music in the description, but go check it out after this. Like, even if you don't think you're into funk music, you listen to the Do Rights, you will be into funk music. So, Check that out. Yeah. Uh, J-Zone, love your music. But tonight we're talking movies, my friend. Uh, where yeah. did today's topic come from? We're doing 80s cult classics. What are some of those? Uh, why the topic? What's the inspiration? Well, people always, uh, people kind of pick on me because I'm the most movie illiterate. I'm the most movie illiterate person on the entire earth. Like I've never seen the matrix. <laughs> I've never seen what like, like pick a movie that's popular. I've never seen it. I just, <laughs> because I, I just, I do like, I, 
this I don't listen to the radio. I don't I don't I'm very pop culture ignorant. I just I just kind of live in a somewhat of a bubble and okay. I just kind of gravitate towards what I like and like I've seen a million B movies but I've never seen The Terminator. <laughs> I mean, oh, man. Like I've never seen just pick anything popular that's you know anything like I've never seen it. Like I've seen, I mean, obviously some like Rocky, you know, the, certain things I've seen. Back to the Future, this, you know, a Karate Kid, like this, some pieces, but particularly in the last, I'd say, thirty years, any famous movie in the last thirty years, with the exception of like Friday and a few cult classics, I really haven't kept up. And the key word there is cult. Like I've always been into movies that are kind of hokey and just like a product of the times. That most of them just. I find that there's like people who can quote them line for line like me or people just never seen it. Like there's sure. never a movie that everybody's seen. So, you know, um, and then obviously as I got older, I got less and less into movies as I became an adult. So most of my movie going experience going to a theater was between I don't know, being three or four years old and seeing something like E.T. to maybe getting into college, which is the late nineties, you know, where that was the last time I would really go to the movies was in college. Like the, I, I went sporadically as an adult, but my college, you know, my movie going experience in the cinemas pretty much stopped in the late nineties. So we're really only looking at a 15 year period of going to a movie theater and, and your feet are sticking to the floor and you're eating that horrible popcorn and you got the <laughs> the four Reese's peanut butter cups instead of two and you, you got a big jumbo soda and you, people are making noise in the theater. So I just very, just for whatever reason, I just never, and then, you know, being growing up in the eighties, uh, cable television was huge. Having a VCR was huge. So with these yeah. kind of cultural phenomenons, Anything I saw in the theater, I would tape it right away when it came on <laughs> HBO or Cinemax or Showtime. Those were the only three networks. Or I would rent the VHS from Blockbuster. I'm, I'm aging myself here. Uh, or like uh, we used to live near a place called Star Video. Uh, there was like a Hollywood video chain for a while. Yeah, yep. so, I remember you know, that. And I used to watch just random. And all the movies I like were from the 70s, 80s, early 90s. like in that capsule and I would go back and watch Dolomite and a lot of the black exploitation and car wash and all the stuff from the seventies was great from before my time. Then all the 80s stuff I actually saw in the theater. And then in the nineties, it was kind of like menace of society juice, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Friday, like those were movies like that came out when I was high school and, and college, you know, what was the one with Keenan Ivory Wayans? I mean, well, you know, I'm going to get you, sucker. But then the other one with Sally Sally Richardson, uh, Low Down, Dirty Shame. I remember seeing those. So these aren't popular, popular movies, but they were kind of like the sign of the times, you know. And sure. were, a lot of them were, were cult. So my my taste in movies is limited. Like, I never got Netflix or any streaming services until uh, September this past September, you know, like it's been four months before that I had basic cable and I've watched basketball or news. So I'm, I wouldn't, I'm not what you would consider a movie buff, but when it comes to a certain era and style, I'm more of a TV buff. I like old television, sixties and seventies and eighties television. I'll go pound for pound with you, but 
movies. I think it's attention span. I think it's um, it's not as it wasn't as accessible as TV back then. You had to go to the theater. You had to rent the VHS tape. So growing up, movies were just not as accessible, and I was more into music. So I just never really became a movie buff like that. And but then I got a taste for a handful of movies where I can quote the dialogue of the whole thing. <laughs> and that's just that's just how it is, you know. You're a brave soul coming onto this show and admitting that you're not a huge movie buff, but I know we're going to make it a great show cuz I mean, you're from the same era that I am with mm -hmm. uh I I I'm guessing we're probably about the same age. Yeah. And I went through that whole blockbuster shit. I had a Hollywood video there too. And uh man, just I remember just flipping through those VHS tapes because, you know, I didn't get to go to the theater that much when I was younger. So you'd wait till Batman came out on uh, VHS and then you you grabbed it. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm happy that we're covering this area. So in your mind, like cult is is kind of that product of the times. I went pretty much in that same area. Uh, it's it's those things that maybe didn't catch on as much in the theater, but then gained a huge following afterwards. That's kind of like the the lens that I looked at this with. Yeah. I'm really glad that um, when when you just you sent over like 80s cult films and I put together my list and then I'm like, oh, shoot, I hope he didn't mean like movies about cults. Because no, 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 no. And even mine, like out of the five, like one of them, I think, is actually a masterpiece, brilliant movie. So I don't know if it even qualifies as cult, but it's just not a super popular movie. And then the, the other four are like so bad they're good like hokey and campy and All right it, it's like it's just it's such an 80s thing and they're ridiculous and when you watch them now they're so ridiculous but they're hysterical and then the other one is ridiculous but it's but there's a serious my number one pick my favorite movie of all time came out in 87 and there's like a serious it's hysterical but it, there's a serious undertone to it that hmm. I don't know if I would call it cult, but it has a message beneath the laughs where the other ones are just drop dead funny. And then, okay. and, then or, and then one of them is just a drama, but it's just like has so many tropes and, and things of the time that it makes it just campy, you know? So one of them is, I would say is not campy. It was just like underappreciated. And then the other four were definitely campy. Okay, sounds like we're going to have a good mix then. I got, uh, man, on my list I got five, and they're all from different genres. I tried to split it up a little bit. Mm. I didn't want to go too heavy on one genre, so we're going to have a good mix of stuff for people to check out here. Okay. Uh, that being said, Jay, you ready to get to this list? Let's do it. You know what's going to happen? Mm. You know what's happening here right now? I know what's going to happen. No, no, no. All right, my friend. Uh, why don't you kick us off with number five here? What's number five on your list of 80s cult classics? Well, number five, I'm going to have to go with Moving Violations. Because you people are without a doubt the worst drivers in the world. And your Moving Violations prove it. You will not get your licenses back until you pass this course in our traffic school. Never be able to make it. None of them will. You think we're finished? Washed up? History? Well, I've got news for you. It's not over till it's over. Every one of you is a menace. Come on, buddy, let's go! 
reckless. Oh my god, I'm three minutes late for my pills. You're undisciplined. This has totally ruined sex for me for the rest of my life. I'll get you, you little whip. But worst of all, you have no respect for authority. Moving violations. If I were you, I'd get used to public transportation. With John Murray, who's Bill Murray's brother, uh, who never got famous like Bill Murray. And it came out in 84. I saw it in the theater. Um, it It's basically about a trap, uh, a bunch of like really oddball characters that all end up in traffic school for various uh, auto infraction, like moving violations. And the, uh, the instructor is like this hard nosed, uh, you know, just sadistic, cop <laughs> you know and he the cop is played by james keach who was in a lot of, he was in wildcats which is not on my list but another huge favorite 80s movie of mine he played like the, the villainous dad goldie horn's husband in wildcats so he has that he has that face where he just looks like just like a like sergeant killjoy so he has the perfect <laughs> look and then he has his partner who had like the short haircut and she was like really tough and then, you know, but you had all these characters that were hysterical. Like you had uh, uh, Ned Eisenberg, who played the defense attorney on Law and Order, but he plays like um, one of the traffic students who's like, uh, his name is Wink in the movie, and he's obsessed with violence and gore. So like when they're showing, it, you know how they got to show videos in traffic school of like, this is what can happen if you don't wear your seatbelt. And it shows like a bunch of kids getting plowed over and there's blood all over the screen. He's like, oh man, this is just like Cujo. You know, like he's, in, <laughs> like he's super into horror movies. And then there was like uh, Fred Willard plays like a doctor, but he works on cars. And then he had like one of the patients, he was like, well, have you, have you lubed? And, and the patient, the, the student he's talking to is a hypochondriac. So she's like, I heard you're a doctor and he's talking about cars, but she's talking about being sick in your body. So he's like, how's your rear end? Have you have you lubed your rear end lately? And he said, you know, have, you got to drain that water early in the morning and then you lube your rear end. And she goes to his like his auto body shop, butt naked. And gets the thing. It's so and then, uh, the funniest, though. Well, also, side note, it's one of Don Cheadle's first appearances on screen he plays uh he works at a burger joint and um the guy who played trust us jones and cb4 is in there as a young oh, yeah. kid and um but my favorite character in that movie is uh nedra vols who played adelaide the old maid the old lady the, the maid on different strokes she always played granny roles or old lady roles and she's like hard of hearing and blind and like she's just like but she's really foul mouthed She's like in the in the men's bathroom and she's sitting on a urinal. They're like, oh, I think you're in the bathroom. And she's like, no, I'm not. And she's like, why is my back all wet? <laughs> she's sitting in the urinal. Like she's, it's, it's, it's hysterical. Like it's so bad. Like I think Rotten Tomatoes gave it like 26% or something crazy. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's just so silly. And, and the music, it's just such an 80s movie man it's just it's so bad and i remember i had it when i was young it came on cable i taped it i had a vhs tape with 
Moving Violations and Johnny Dangerously with Michael Keaton. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and I had them together on a on a VHS tape, and I still have the tape. Oh man, this is a this is a '80s movie I have never seen. I know of it, but I haven't seen it. Oh, it's a, it's it's just it's hysterical. <laughs> I'm gonna have to check it out. And to this moment, I did not know that Bill Murray had a brother that also tried acting. So, like, as you said, he's the that, lead. Like, Wait he's a minute. the lead in the he's the lead in the movie. That's the funny thing. So you're like, you know, he's about to blow like Bill Murray, and he never. I don't think he ever reached that that pinnacle that his brother did. But you know, oh. um, yeah, man, it, it just the cast of characters that went on to do other things, and then you know, the the it, it was just. It's silly. Like it's not a great movie, but it's just such a sign of the times and it's such it's more nostalgia, you know, and and being part of a being like maybe 7 when it came out and seeing it and it's 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 got a lot of slapstick humor in it. It's just it's funny. Um I'm going to go to one that's really similar to this in terms of tone it sounds like, a little slapstick, kind of funny. And it's also one that I saw when I was pretty little, probably way too little that I that I shouldn't have seen it. But I had these cousins, man. I'd go to my cousin Chris's house and he would just have stuff that no kid should watch. But we just watched it anyway. Like that's the first place I saw Child's Play. You know, those kind of movies that you're not supposed to see (laughs) when you're that young. And uh, one of the movies that he showed us is from 1986. Big Trouble in Little China. Remember the name, Jack Burton. Who? Jack Burton. Me. Where's Jack? Jack! Everybody relax, I'm here. How are you going to spring us? I have no idea. He's coming to rescue your summer. Hey, what more can a guy ask for? Big trouble. In Little China. Ready PG-13. Starts Wednesday, July 2nd at a theater near you. I never saw that, but I remember it. Oh, man, it's so much fun. So much fun. Um, This one was originally conceived as like a Western that mixed in fantasy and martial arts, but the script was essentially destroyed and rewritten, and there's like legal battles and stuff that happen with it, but essentially it's the story of this trucker named Jack Burton played by um, Kurt Russell, and he's just amazing as this kind of bumbling idiot who goes head-to-head with this ancient sorcerer named Lo Pan, and they have a supernatural battle beneath Chinatown after Lo Pan kidnaps his girlfriend for some type of sacrifice. Oh, wow. It is really, really silly. It's really funny. It um, the film bombed. Like it cost, I think it said twenty five million to make, and only made like four million dollars at the box Ooh. office. Came wow. in at number twelve during the Fourth of July weekend, behind films like uh, Psycho Three. And some movie that I didn't even know was a real title, Legal Eagles, which oh, wow. I've never seen. Um, but it's packed with all kinds of stuff that I love. The tongue-in-cheek references to the stuff that came before it, like Western movies, really, really cheesy special effects that even in 1986, as a young kid, I could tell they were like really dumb looking. But now I watch it and it's like, oh my gosh, that's so fun. <laughs> all the one-liners... Nothing makes sense. The plot does not make sense at all, but it doesn't really matter. And yeah. then uh, one of the coolest things is, I think is like Kurt Russell's character is he feels like the sidekick, even though he doesn't know he's a sidekick because he hangs out with this uh, Asian man named Wang Chi. And Wang Chi is the guy who knows what's going on. He's really the best thing on screen here. 
Jack Burton's this idiot. He can't use a gun. Uh, every plan he draws up just instantly goes to shit. He knocks himself out. The The first time he tries to like fight somebody, he knocks himself out because <laughs> he doesn't know how to fight. But over time, like obviously he didn't make much at the box office, but over time you can see its influence, especially with the uh, the bad guy, Lopan. The uh, Marvel villain, the Mandarin, was modeled after Lopan. So we're in, and I know you're not a movie guy, but I'm sure that when you were younger, you played Mortal Kombat at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Raiden and Shang Tsung from Mortal Kombat were both inspired by Lopan. And uh, even the newer Thor movie, Thor Ragnarok, uh, Taika Waititi said that that film was an influence. So, yeah, Big Trouble in Little China, another one of those movies that I just could not get enough of when I was younger. And there's a scene where some dude's head kind of balloons up and then explodes. And we just thought it was the funniest thing we'd ever seen <laughs> when I was little. And I, I still think it's really funny today. Yeah, that that was definitely that era of like silly and campy and it. I just also being young and I think the way the film was treated and the cheesiness of that electronic music, it's just a vibe. Man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? Definitely. Definitely. All right. Number four for you, Jay. Number four, I'm going back to the very early eighties, a movie called class of 1984 class of 1984. Their only goal is power. I run this school, man. If you want to survive around here, you have got to learn to look the other way. I am the future. I am the future. I am the future. Somebody's got to stop this insanity. If they are the future, who will stop them? Class of 1984. Rated R. Um, with Timothy Van Patten. Uh, Perry King, Roddy McDowell, and a very young Michael J. Fox before Family Ties. Yeah. So this movie, I was, I gravitated. I remember seeing this in maybe the eighth. It, it came out in, I think, 82. But I saw it around 1990. There was like this Friday night movie thing at like 11 o'clock at night on like one of the local cable stations. And I was maybe in eighth grade or so. And I was like, class 1984, and it said featuring Timothy Van Patten, <clears throat> Michael J. Fox. Timothy Van Patten, he's a, he was a, wound up being a famous director on The Sopranos years later. But Timothy Van Patten was in a TV show called The White Shadow in the 70s, which is my favorite TV show of all time. Um, it's about an inner city school where a retired pro ball player goes to coach, and the school is a mostly black and Hispanic school. And it's in, you know, in the inner city and he's dealing with all these hard issues that weren't on TV at the time. It was very groundbreaking. It only lasted two, three years. But he, Timothy Van Patten played Salami, one of only two white kids on the team. So he was like really <laughs> funny. He was really he was always funny and like but kind of a tough guy from Mass from Brooklyn or Massapequa or wherever. And he could fight. So in the movie, he plays. This is like the, that. It started with Blackboard Jungle and then it went on to things like Lean On Me and The Principal and, you know, but it's always this theme in Hollywood of the dangerous high school, like the, the yeah. school that's so bad that you want, like the world, like they would try to outshock each other with like, you come in, it's <laughs> covered in graffiti. Everybody's got leather vests and tattoos and switchblades and bandanas and smoking cigarettes and like, this is, it's it's like, I think they were trying to capitalize on the 
the fear of what's happening to our nation's schools. So there was a there was every few years there was a movie about how violent a public school could be in the inner yeah. city. So it takes place in Brooklyn at a school called Lincoln High. There is a Lincoln High School in Brooklyn. I've been to it many times, but it's not this Lincoln. It was filmed in Canada, but this is like a fictional Lincoln in Brooklyn. And he plays the gang leader and villain in the school. And he's like an immensely gifted piano player, but he's like a gang banger. You know what I mean? Like he's like a tough dude, like a punk. And Perry King is the new music teacher who moves to the school to teach. And he's the new, he's the new music teacher. And he basically tortures and terrorizes this new music teacher because he won't allow him to play in the orchestra with them because he knows he's talented, but he's just bad. So he starts yeah. to terrorize this guy, like his wife is pregnant or something like his wife is being terrorized. Like he's blow firebombs in the car. They're beating up people in the school. They, they like Michael J. Fox was like a nerd and his prize student. And they, they stabbed him in his kidney in the cafeteria brawl. And a guy is like high on angel dust or, or PCP or something. And he climbs up the flagpole and falls off the American flag and dies. And like this, this gang is selling drugs to the whole school. They're, they're stabbing people. They raping. They rapes it. Like Roddy, McD Roddy McDowell plays this deranged science teacher who's in. He loves his animals, his lab animals. And then they gutted and killed all the animals and left them on sticks. And he's like Roddy McDowell's like my animals, my animals. <laughs> and he's like walking around psychotic. And they're like, he's like they're like he's like I'm okay. I'm all right. And they knows that this guy stick. Timothy Van Patten plays a character named Peter Stegman, who's the lead, the villain. He's like, and they know Stegman did it. And then they flash forward to a scene where he's in class and Stegman is sitting there. He's like, what is an amphibian? He says something like that. And nobody knows the answer. And he goes up to Stegman. He's like, what is the answer? And he pulls out a gun and puts it to his head. He was like, tell me the answer. He's like, ah, ah, ah. and then he's like, wrong, you fail. Boom. He tries to, the gun goes off and he goes ballistic and it like, and the scene and the movie ends with like this duel to the death where Perry King and Timothy Van, Van Patten are fighting above the auditorium in the, in the ceiling. And Timothy Van Patten falls through the glass and he's like hung, hanging by a, a rope over the orchestra concert that they were rehearsing for and the crowd is going crazy. It's like this whole thing where he, it's him, the teacher versus Stegman and his gang. There's like five of them. And the last 30 minutes of the movie, like one of them, they go into the wood shop and he throws the guy on a, on a circular saw and it cuts his body open. And then he goes in the gym and throws like some kind of contraption and knocks this guy out it is it's so ridiculous like it's so exaggerated <laughs> with the violence and the gangs in the schools and it's just it's not a well-known movie i don't think it was well received but it was one of those things where it what like blackboard jungle goes way back but it, to me it's like the first in this pantheon of like bad school movies you know cuz you had belushi with the principal uh, yeah. Lean on me. Lean on me with Morgan Freeman is a classic, but that's that's a true story. So that doesn't fall into the category because that's the Joe Clark thing. But these Hollywood made like, you know, and then in the 80s, in the 90s, these stupid savior movies like Dangerous Minds and oh yeah, Sunset Park with Rhea Perlman and Michelle Pfeiffer. Then it just got so they had the, the whole white lady savior thing in the movies.
And then 187 with Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, then, you know, all that kind of stuff. But in the 80s, there was just, it, it, the 80s just felt more dangerous, maybe because it was more dangerous and because I was younger. So they, yeah. these look like really bad teenagers and it made me scared to go to high school or junior high school because I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. So I remember watching that movie and being like, this is the greatest shit ever. <laughs> oh man, I haven't seen this movie in such a long time, but as you're describing it, it's just like bringing it all back. You saw, you saw it, so you saw it. You saw a class of I, Yeah, I've seen this a long time ago because I watched this and then there was a sequel called Class of 99. Class Ooh, of 1999 that I watched. Um, that one's not that good. But um, the, the, I, I watched, you know, it's weird. I watched these in reverse order. So I watched Class of 1999 first, and then I watched Class of 99, and then I watched Class of 84. But, wow. but uh, yeah, this is directed by Mark Lester, who yeah. had all kinds of classic 80s movies like uh, Commando, Firestarter, and um, even Showdown in Little Tokyo was his. Yeah, it was Mark Lester for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good pick. And this is, I, I remember this movie, Michael J. Fox in the credits. He's just Michael Fox, Michael, which yeah, always Michael seemed Fox. weird to me. And this was, the, <laughs> this was the same, I think, when did Family Matter, not Family Matter, Family Ties come out in 82 or 84? I can't remember what year it, it came out. It, it had to have been like Reagan era stuff, right? It was <laughs> because Michael. Alex B. Keaton was like a Reagan guy. Yeah. yeah it, you know, his whole, his, his whole thing with capitalism and Gordon Gecko greed is good. Like he kind of had the young corporate 80, I think, okay. Family ties, I think came out in 82. So he was probably when he was filming class of 84, he was probably auditioning for family ties at the same time. Like that's yeah, how far yeah. back that thing is, man. That's a, another good pick. Uh, yeah. I guess for my number four, I'll go to kind of my, I guess my horror genre one here, which is, uh, I don't know if it's as mean spirited because it's played kind of as like a really dark comedy, but I'll kick it off by saying in 1978, this young dude, his friends, they made this super eight film called within the woods and they made this movie for like a thousand six hundred dollars and they made it with the hopes of attracting investors so they could remake it as a feature and these big dreams like playing in a theater with the Rocky Horror Picture Show and it didn't work out. So he had to like call every investor he could think of to scrape together this money. And he did. And for $375,000, Sam Raimi and his friend, Bruce Campbell made a film called the evil dead in 1981. I have seen the dark shadows moving in the woods. And I have no doubt that whatever I have resurrected is sure to come calling for me. They got up on the wrong side of the grave. Evil Dead from New Line Cinema. So frightening no one under 17 admitted. If you think about the return on investment and just the level of cult status that it's garnered over the years, it's kind of crazy. Came out the year I was born, 81. uh, Made for 375K. And to this day, it has made over like $27 million. Wow. It's about these five Michigan University students, or Michigan State. They go to Michigan State, yeah. Um, led by Ash Williams, and they go to this isolated cabin in Tennessee on vacation. And it's, it starts out as, you know, your typical kids on vacation movie. And then uh, when they find this Book of the Dead, 
and an archaeologist recording in the cellar, they play the recording while they have the book open and accidentally resurrect this demonic entity, and then all hell breaks loose. It is just wow. like... Evil Dead. I gotta look this up. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, there's um there, there's so many properties. Like, since 1981, there's been two sequels written and directed by Raimi. So, Evil Dead 2, which was kind of a remake of Evil Dead, and then there's Army of Darkness, which is just insane. And that's where he has a chainsaw attached to his hand. There was yeah. a uh, fourth film, Evil Dead, in 2013, which was kind of like a reboot, kind of a continuation. And then there was even a TV series called Ash vs. Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so many different properties off of this. It's really dark comedy, but it's also really good horror. It's not as kind of um, played for laughs as the sequels are, but mm-hmm. it's got great makeup effects. It's got great gore. There's definitely some uncomfortable stuff in here, but I think it still holds up. And now they have 4K editions of it that you can get, so it looks really good. And uh, in terms of influence, some of my favorite directors like Edgar Wright, Drew Goddard, Peter Jackson, even like Lars von Trier have cited this as an influence. And I've always thought it was cool that the editor on the film, there was this young editor named Joel Cohen who would go on to use the Raimi formula and Raimi's influence to make his own short to secure funding for Blood Simple, which turned into the Cohen brothers' career. So stuff like Fargo kind of came out of this. And, um, you know, Raimi obviously ha- over the years has directed a lot of cool stuff, including the first Spider-Man movies, uh, just a really influential horror movie from the 80s made on a shoestring budget and uh, turned into a lot more. So you should give Evil Dead a chance. I mean, you could no, even I'm, start I'm with Evil Dead, that. too. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah, I like I like horror. You know, like I'm not deep into it, but I mean, like, you know, Cujo and uh, uh, Bad Seed. My mother yeah. was into horror movies, so she used to watch like Christine and The Bad Seed and Cujo and <laughs> yeah. things like that, Shining and you know, so all that kind of stuff. Yeah, this is a lot less scary than something like The Shining, but it's it's a lot more. There's a lot more camp to it, and you know, I always admire those things that you can tell were film. Like they they put the camera on a piece of wood and just like moved it around the forest because that's all they had, and wow. that that stuff shines through. I love that stuff. Wow. So yeah, it's my uh my number four. Well, your number four was class of nineteen eighty four from eighty two, and mine was the Evil Dead from nineteen eighty one. So we're on to number three. Number three, I gotta go with a movie where I know every line, the whole thing. Clue. <laughs> oh, great pick. Was it Professor Plum, Mrs. White, Mr. Green, Mrs. Peacock, Miss Scarlet, or Colonel Mustard? I am only a dinner guest. With a knife, a gun, a pipe, a candlestick, or a rope. In the hall, lounge, dining room, kitchen, library, or the study. And to make a long story short, too late. Or did the butler do it? We've got to find out. Clue. It's a comedy with three different endings. Who done it depends on where you see it. Rated PG. Starts Friday, December 13th at a theater near you. I was a huge, and still am, a huge... I don't play apps like games and stuff on my phone, but I have the Clue app on my phone. Every night before bed, I... I play around the clue and growing up I had the original board game. So me and my grandfather used to play clue when I was young, young. And then yeah. um then it was like, yo, this is gonna be a movie. And when it came out in the theaters, there were three different endings. So depending mm-hmm. on what time and what theater, you saw a different ending. 
right? So, you know, um, I think we saw the one where Miss Peacock did it. Like me and my dad, my dad took me to, my dad took me to see it. And then when we got it on VHS, I saw all of them. That is the greatest, the acting, it, like just from loving the game and the mystery and suspense of the game, but then the acting is so good. Like, the improv, like the, the the highlight of the movie is like Madeline Kahn, like, yes, I did it. I killed you that. <laughs> I hated her so much that flames, flames on the side of my face, breath, breath he, heathing breath. <laughs> like, and then you find out way later on that that wasn't in her script. Like she ad-libbed that thing. And it's like Tim Curry was unbelievable. Like just, he was brilliant. And then you know, uh, Martin Mull, Christopher Lloyd, you know, like Leslie Ann Warren is Miss Scar- uh, Eileen Brennan, Miss Peacock. Don't you touch me! <laughs> like, <laughs> but look what happened to the cook. <laughs> like, just like all this stuff, and um, you know, like it, it was um, the one-liners include the comedic timing and the one-liners of, um, and just the random I. M, you're singing telegram. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, it's just, um, you know, monkey's brains and, you know, is that what we ate? <laughs> I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife. Like, there's just these lines. And it takes place in the in the 50s because you have, like, the flamingos and, you know, as the music, I only have eyes for you. And then you have, like, shake, rattle, and roll. So it takes place, McCarthyism, you know, like, in that era. Yeah. But it was filmed in the 80s. And, you know, I absorbed it in the 80s. So, you know, it's considered 80s, but it take really takes place in the 50s. Um, but it's just the it's it's it was one of those movies that was a total failure. It bombed. They were trying to capitalize off the success of the board game and, you know, all that stuff. But then when it made its way to cable, uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, reruns, cable and home video it garnered a fan base in the nineties, like a cult following. It's like, I'll never forget. I went on a date probably 2013, probably like 10 years ago. And we had nothing in common, but we had a like of clue. And the whole date was us just trading the lines. It was like, <laughs> yeah, this ain't, you know, I don't think we're a fit, but it was nice to meet you. But it was just like an hour of just like, by now she was dead. Run down the hall and stab the cook. (laughs) Like all this shit. And it's just the the one, the lines, the lines, the acting, the ensemble, you know, the the cast of like, they were all, they weren't bullshit. Like they were all very good actors and actresses in that movie. Um, And it's just uh, as a fan of the game to to go to the movie was a no brainer, but it's, 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 I think it's brilliant. I think the acting, I mean, the, the plot is silly, but the acting is uh, brilliant. Yeah, t- uh, Tim Curry, obviously, is, he kind of steals the show here as the yeah. person who's orchestrating everything. Like, he's conveying all the information to us as the audience. But I just watched this for the first time, maybe like a year and a half ago, two years, wow. and I loved it. I was never a fan of the board game. It's not like I disliked it. I just never had the chance to play it when I was little. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't have the game knowledge. I knew it was a board game, but I never played it. So, yeah, it was it was really fun. And I remember on the Blu-ray, you could pick 
to let the player tell you what happened at the end. So you could either watch it with all three endings at the end, or you could just let it pick an ending. So yeah. I thought that was kind of a, a neat thing too. But yeah, yeah, really good improv and uh, directed by the guy who directed My Cousin Vinny. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a, that's a good pick. And you're right, it definitely bombed at the box office. But the cult following over time, I know that uh, there was a remake in talks. Ryan Reynolds was supposed to be starring in the remake, and then that... I hope not. I really hope not. Yeah, well, that fell through. That fell through, so you don't have to worry Thank about that. <laughs> God, that fell through. Leave it alone, man. I know that Knives Out is very similar. Like, there's, like, some yeah. modern things. I yeah. haven't seen it, but I heard about it. But... um I hope they leave Clue alone, man. It's just like leave it alone. It's 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 it can't it can't be improved any more than what it is. I agree. I agree. We're not out of the woods yet. Um, James, Jason Bateman, I know, was attached at one point, and there's another dude that's in talks. I think now to like redo it. So we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully not, but we'll see. Um, okay, number three for me. We're gonna go to 1987 here for my uh, kid adventure film. Which, I mean, as you know, in the 80s, movie theaters were just like absolutely soaked with kid adventure films like E.T. and the Goonies and the Explorers and Stand Goonies. By Me and all these Stand all these me. kid adventures. I remember I saw those. Yeah. Yeah. So good. And there was one that kind of flew under the radar a little bit. And I wish it didn't. More people need to watch this. It's 1987's Monster Squad. Once upon a time, it was one monster per movie. Those were the good old days. We're the Monster Squad. Awesome. Only one way to kill a werewolf. Kick him in the nose! He doesn't have a mind! Go it, go it! Wolfman's got nerves! The Monster Squad, rated PG-13. Okay, I think you're gonna I think you're gonna enjoy this one. This one opened up. Uh, summer of 1987 at number 12, just like Big Trouble in Little China, made under $2 million behind just garbage films like Disorderlies and Summer School. Oh, I love Disorderlies. That was on my honorable <laughs> mention list. <laughs> I, I can't stand that movie. Oh, I uh, love that movie. <laughs> but uh, like if you enjoy stuff like The Goonies, you got to think of Monster Squad as like The Goonies, but with monsters. It's about... Okay. Dracula, so Dracula is alive, and he plans to rule the world, and so to do this, he seeks the help of other legendary monsters, like the Wolfman, like Frankenstein, and there's this bunch of kids who are monster movie fanatics, they call themselves the Monster Squad, and all the other kids, they call them losers, and they're kind of outcasts, but they are the ones to uncover this plan, and they have to try and stop these monsters from taking over the world. And it is really, really fun. It's written by Shane Black, who wrote like Lethal Weapon and The Nice Guys and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, there are knockoff versions of the Universal Monsters in here, like the Invisible Man, those kind of things. But they're really well done. And there are some surprises, too. One of the monsters is actually really kind of sweet, which is kind of fun. <laughs> if you are a fan of those teen movies and want a little bit of horror with it, like a, a little spice of horror, this is going to hit the spot. There was also in uh, 2018, there was a documentary about the film's cult status called Wolfman's Got Nards, which is a <laughs> uh, line from the film directed by Andre Gower, who played the club leader named Sean. And um, 
Just like with Clue, there were some attempts at a remake with this one. Who knows if that will ever happen? I I hope it doesn't happen, just like you hope that Clue remake doesn't happen, because, I mean, why mess with it? It's good as it is. And don't confuse this with, um, there's another movie from the 80s, and I hope it's not on your list, because I don't want to step on toes, but it's called Little Monsters. No, Which, it's another, like, 80s classic. It stars Fred Savage from The Wonder Years as a kid who befriends (laughs) a monster under his bed. Clearly the inspiration for Monsters, Inc., uh, but wow. I mean, both of them are good, but monster squad by far the better of the two 1987. That's my number three. Wow. It's a good one. Okay. My number two, uh, 1985 Barry Gordy's the last dragon. He's a champion who doesn't want to fight. He's such a hardcore Bruce Lee fan. He eats popcorn with chopsticks. He'll risk his life for a rock video queen, but he's afraid to talk to her. He's either totally weird or he's the last dragon. He sure looked like a master to me. Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon, directed by Michael Schultz with a PG-13. Now playing in a theater near you. This is... <laughs> well, this, this movie contains the greatest scene in the history of cinema. Um, the greatest single scene and one of the greatest characters, Julius J. Carey III as Shonuff, the Shogun of Harlem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the premise is, well, it, it's, it's, Barry Gordy was in charge of it. It's from Motown. So it's like, it's half, it's one third black exploitation, one third kung fu flick, and one third musical. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. you have, uh, the premise is like, you have Tymac, who's kind of like a, you know, he's like a pretty boy kind of a guy. And he's like, but he's kind of shy. He's socially awkward. And he's like a young black Kung Fu uh, kung fu student who lives in Harlem. And he's a little weird, eccentric, you know, and um, his family has owns a pizza shop, the only black owned pizza shop in the world, apparently, Daddy Green's Pizza. So he has this pizza shop. And his, you know, his younger brother is like, has the hots for a, a, a singer named Laura Charles played by Vanity. And Vanity was so fine back then. She was gorgeous. And she's kind of like, you know, she's working with Prince at the time or just finished Vanity Six. So she was a star. So she's like a heartthrob, a crush. So she's like the, the, the female lead and the object of affection. And then she's being persuaded by like this sleazy management company uh, by a guy named Eddie Arcadian, who's like a short, balding, demonic, power hungry, insane man. And then Leroy is being antagonized. Leroy Green is the lead. Time Act plays Leroy Green. He goes by Bruce Leroy because he's into (laughs) Kung Fu. And he's being antagonized by somebody who wants to prove that he's the Kung Fu master. And his name is Shonuff, the Shogun of Harlem. And he walks around in like this ridiculous red outfit with bell-bottom pants and red shoulder shoulder pads. And he kind of looks like Rick James a little. He's got like a processed hair. He's ridiculous. And he's got an army of three minions that follow him around. And they just go around Harlem in the city just beating up people, trying to prove they're the master. And they antagonize Leroy to try to get him to fight. We're going to see who's the master once and for all. And they they... The funniest scene in the movie is when they go to the family pizza shop looking for... If you go to YouTube, put looking for Leroy. Put Last Dragon looking for Leroy. 
it's a three-minute scene where he goes to the family pizza shop, like, looking for Leroy. And they're like, he ain't here. We wouldn't tell you if he was. And he proceeds to trash the family <laughs> pizza shop. But it's so friggin' funny. And at the end of the, the, the trash the shop, they throw his Leroy's younger brother in a trash can and tear the place up. And he's like, he's getting ready to tell the father, like, you'll tell your son. And this one of Eddie Arcadian's artists has a video uh, playing on the screen. Her name is Angela Baracco. And they're playing her video. And she's really bad, like this older Jewish woman who kind of, like, she's really annoying. And she's got, like, she she has on her breast, she has, like, reflector, bike reflector light. It's so 80s and so cheesy. And he sees the video playing on the TV at the pizza shop. And he's interrupted by it. He's like, who plays this garbage? Shut up, bitch. <laughs> Boom. And he kicks a hole in the television. <laughs> He's like, I don't even know that. He's like, tell that chicken-hearted son of yours to name the place. Because now he's got to fight me. And he grabs a slice of pizza on the way out and kicks a hole in the front door. It's it's the greatest, the greatest three. When I'm on my deathbed, I just want to see that. Like three minutes before I die, just put that on so I could leave in style. It is the greatest, the greatest three minutes ever laid down to film. Looking for Leroy. Look it up on YouTube. It's hysterical. Bruce Leroy, so wildly entertaining in this. Uh, the Glow. I mean, yeah. heck, if you're going to go out <laughs> three minutes watching this, you're going to go out in the glow, man. There's also a really great scene where Leroy catches a fucking bullet in his teeth. In his teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just it awesome. Was- and I was, I, my dad took me and my friend who lived upstairs to the movie, Whitestone Cinemas in the Bronx, a movie theater that's no longer there. And we saw this in a theater on like a Saturday night. Place was packed. Place was going nuts. Like this is, this is New York in the mid 80s, like crack era. So it was dangerous. It was wild. My dad kind of took us. And people would laugh. It was, I remember the theater being live, like just like live. And, um, it was like, man, this, and we were just cracking up, man. Yeah, it, this it, is a good one. <laughs> it, is, it is cold. If you listen to a lot of rap lyrics, a lot of rappers are fans of this movie, too. There's a lot of lyrics about The Last Dragon. A, a lot, lot of lyrics. lyrics. And I think Buster Rhymes, if I'm not mistaken, didn't he in one of his videos do a motif where he dressed up like Shonuff? I want to say I, I want to say I saw Buster. Either they were going to get Buster to do that or he paid homage oh and um yeah 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 in dangerous there you go yeah he paid homage to, to show enough the show gonna harlem yeah uh i know ra the rugged man who i'm sure you know he well yeah you know him because he was on one of your records at one point I, I, were, I worked with him at one point yeah yeah he has some uh he has some lyrics about this one too that's a good pick that's a good pick. Yeah, it's classic. Uh, well, shoot. Let's go to my number two here, where our main character also wears red. Completely different style of movie, though. This one's from 1988. It's a movie called Akira. And this is the Ooh, only anime that. film that I think I've ever talked about on this show. You said you have not heard of this? I've never even heard of it. Morning. The following offer is for mature audiences only. Exciting. Mysterious. Intense. Graphic, provocative, raw. This is no ordinary animation. This is the exotic, bizarre, and beautiful world of Japanese anime. And this is your invitation to enter with the modern classic Akira. 
Critics say Akira makes Blade Runner look like Disney World. It's action-packed, the future of animation. Siskel and Ebert call it the video pick of the week. Akira is yours for only $4.95 with subscription when you order the best of Japanese animation collection series. All right. Well, um, I'm not a huge fan of anime movies, but I've seen a handful. But back when I was really starting to get into movies, we mentioned Blockbuster. I would go. uh, There was a Blockbuster. I used to ride my bike to this grocery store that I worked at. And in the middle, like directly in the middle was a Blockbuster. So I'd go to work. I'd ride my bike past this Blockbuster, pick up a couple of tapes and kind of like exchange them for more on my on my way. This is before I worked at a video store. I'm going in there every day and I'm getting recommended things like Full Metal Jacket, Pulp Fiction. This is where I'm starting to see all these movies for the first time. And finally, the guy there recommends Akira. And he's like, you're going to love this. It's it's got a lot of influence for all kinds of stuff that's that's out. In short, the story is about a secret military project that turns this gang member into a rampaging psycho. He has like (laughs) telepathic powers and it's in Tokyo, but it's a future version of Tokyo called Neo Tokyo. And this gang of biker friends and another group of psychics need to come together to stop this guy. Wow. It didn't do much in Japan. Well, I take that back. It did a, it did a little bit of business in Japan, but it didn't really do much in the U.S. It had about a million dollars in theaters. But it's one of those movies that once it hit VHS, it sold like insane amounts of copies hundreds hundreds of thousands of copies and that's kind of what brought anime to the u.s audience was this movie in terms of importance it's now known as one of the most important anime films ever made and one of the most influential just in general sci-fi movies ever made and i'll get to those influences in a minute but it's also surprisingly deep in terms of using like it, it starts with a World War Two and a, a nuke going off in the city. And it says or it says World War Three. But I can tell that's kind of an allegory for what happened to Japan during World War Two and kind of dealing with that. The animation's awesome. It's very violent. It is very bloody people in the very first scene. There's a motorcycle chase and one of the motorcycles just flies through the window of a restaurant and this guy just gets impaled by this motorcycle. And um, it, it, I was reading some of the trivia about it. It had like over 160,000 single pictures for the animation. They had to create a bunch of animation colors for this that weren't even in existence at that point for animators. And if you watch, well, I know you haven't seen the matrix. You need to see the matrix, my man, but uh, the yeah, Matrix hugely, hugely influenced by this Looper, Stranger Things, even Michael Jackson had uh, Akira plan <clears throat> in the background to scream with uh, Janet Jackson um, and failed presidential candidate Kanye West did uh, an Akira thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did see the Matrix, but I, I didn't I, like I saw like bits and pieces of it. I didn't see the whole like I never sat down and watched it from end to end. But God, I, if, I mean, you watch Akira. And then you watch Matrix, you're like, oh, okay, I see that. I see how those things connect in that future world. Yeah, yeah. And this, just like a lot of those movies we're talking about, has been booked for so many American remakes that just have not panned out. Leonardo DiCaprio at one point was attached, and uh, so many drafts that were never used. But yeah, Akira, if if you're looking to get into anime or just want to see an animated movie that is wildly different, Akira is a good choice from 1988. Jay Mumford. AKA J Zone, we've got 
your number one. What's your grand finale, my friend? Uh, my favorite movie of all time. And I don't even really think this is cult, but it's not famously, pop, hugely popular. So I'm going to go with it. And it's not, it, it has a, a meaning to it. It's not just slapstick. Um, it's funny as hell, but it's uh, Hollywood Shuffle. Hi, my name is Robert Townsend, and it's hard to make a movie in Hollywood, but I did, with the help of a few friends and a few credit cards. What's the line? I ain't be got no weapon. <clears throat> I ain't be got no weapon. My film's about making it as an actor in Hollywood. The only role they gonna let us do is a slave, a butler, or some street hood or something. Don't sell out, brother. Oh, the promised land. Minnesota. But the real trick is finding a juicy role when the odds are against you. Good luck, brother. <laughs> what we're looking for is an Eddie Murphy type. What is happening with your cool vines? Thank you. Thank you, You're the worst actor I've ever seen in my life. Then they said I wasn't black enough for the part. Ricky, can you tell us what you've been doing since you've graduated? Well, Robert, I've played nine crooks, four gang leaders, two dope dealers. I played a rapist twice. Whoa. That was fun. They'll never play the Rambos until they stop playing the Sambo. Yeah! Robert Townsend did this as uh, on his American Express card, like a lot of like unauthorized film locations. He was, you know, getting this by the skin of his teeth. Mm -hmm. The old Rudy Ray Moore uh, formula. Yeah. So basically the story is about a young, uh, a young black aspiring black actor named Bobby Taylor. And he works at a hot dog stand called Winky Dinky Dog. He's like, that's his <laughs> job. But he wants, he's, he's doing that. He's, he's an aspiring actor. So he takes film classes. So he goes on auditions all the time. And it just seems that every time he goes for film, they, they always cast young black actors as pimps, gang members, drug dealers, hustlers, criminals, you know, and he's like, why can't, you know, or a slave or something like, why can't a young black actor play an action hero? Like, you know, uh, or like, why can't it be like Indiana Jones, mm -hmm. you know, or, or Dirty Harry, like like something more prestigious, like black actors. And it's it's a serious undertone because that's very true. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of, um, you know, be, black actors being uh, pigeonholed and typecast yep. um, into, into these stereotypical roles that, that are bad on our, you know, our image. And he basically, you know, he, he gets a, uh, you know, so basically there's a, the movie is kind of like a series of skits where he goes, like he's going to these auditions and he's talking to his friends and he's kind of daydreaming and he's, playing all these different skits where he's playing a detective or he's playing this or that playing roles that are like meaningful and he's imagining himself playing these roles throughout the movie so it's like there's a skit called death of a breakdancer and he plays sam ace a detective and keenan ivory wayans is like a breakdancer named jerry curl and like he's always spraying his hair with activator as he's dancing and stuff and they steal his activator and his hair shrivels up and he admits he killed the guy <laughs> He's like, please get my activator, please. Oh! And his, his hair is like shrinking into a ball of a, a fro. And he's like, give me my activator. And I saw that in the theater with my dad. And the theater was going insane. But, you know, they had like, you know, Dirty Larry and then um, like Amadeus. And like just all these different classics and, you know, being done with, you know, 
and it's the cast is the same throughout and they're all playing different roles, but it's telling the story. And then the movie comes to a head where he goes on the audition and the lines are so stereotypical and so embarrassing. And his grandmother is there and she's embarrassed and he just walks off the set and goes and gets the job at the post office. Cause basically it's basically about your integrity as right. an actor to not take those roles and how Hollywood has typecast. And it's, I hate putting it as cult because there's so much meaning to it and it's so well done and it's not campy at all, but it's part of that great eighties experience. And it's not widely known like it should be. It's, it's known within a certain demographic, but it, it wasn't, you know, it's not widely known by a lot of people, you know, and it's, it's been sampled a ton. The dialogue has been used a whole bunch and like all, a lot of people, who became famous got their start in that movie. Damon Wayans, Keenan Ivory Wayans. Um, God, I'm drawing a blank, but um, like a lot of people, like Anne Marie Johnson, like a lot of people in that movie were like very new or had never been on screen before, and they went on to become stars. And then he had like some veterans, like uh, Paul Mooney's in there, Helen Martin, who played the grandma on Two Two Seven. And she played Don't Be a Menace. She always played the grandma role. She was the grandmother. Um, you know, like you had like a lot of lesser known actors in there. That probably people he got, you know, friends, people who weren't expensive. But John Witherspoon was in there very early. Oh, from uh, Friday as well. From Friday, yeah. So John Witherspoon plays the owner of the hot dog stand. His boss, Mr. Jones, Winky Dinky Dog. You know, and um, Keenan Ivory Wayans works there with him. And then Keenan Ivory Wayans also plays Jerry Curl in the skit. So as you're seeing, like, guys get different roles throughout as he's doing these skits and these little vignettes. They, you know, it's it's really, I think it's brilliant. That's my favorite movie of all time. Extremely well done. All right. That's Hollywood Shuffle from 1987. I'm going to have to watch this. I have never heard of this movie. And just from the descriptions alone, I'm in. I'm sold. I got I got to check this out. All right. Good. Number one. Uh, number one for me is what I think we would call the quintessential cult classic by the definition I was going by, which means didn't have a great run, but has grown in popularity ever since. It is 1983's A Christmas Story. Oh yeah, that's the only one in your top five that I that I I know, like I, I've seen. Yeah, yeah. Did you see it in theaters though? I never <laughs> saw it in theaters, but I was like everybody else. Like it came on Christmas mm -hmm. Eve, and yep. um, you know, I was I was alive when it came out. I don't know. That's a good question. I got to ask my mother because. In my house growing up, every Christmas Eve, we would watch Christmas Story. Yeah. Not even on Christmas Day, on Christmas Eve, the night before you watch Christmas Story. Yeah. I mean, they have that whole, like, I think it's TBS or TNT. They do an all-day marathon every single year for this movie. Every on year. It's like, the, it's like the damn Yule Log. Like, it's just <laughs> yeah. running and running. And that's a movie also, like, you know, you'll shoot your eye out. I triple dog dare you. And, um... <laughs> He's got all the lines, you know, oh, only I didn't say fudge. <laughs> a big one. And to this day, this is a funny side note, because of that movie, I use carbolic soap, bar soap, red bar soap. Oh, yeah? When they put it in his mouth to curse him out, I use it for nostalgic purposes. Like, you know, you can't use it on your face and your hair and shit, but I use it. Like, I keep 
bars of carbolic soap here when I, because growing up, I was like, yo, ma, the soap is red. That's crazy. She's like, oh, that's just carbolic soap. <laughs> and then I, I always was into carbolic soap because of the, when they, when he was cursing, they put the soap in his mouth. Yeah, man, this, this movie didn't do anything in theaters. So it came really? out. Yeah. And I was surprised too. It came out, uh, Thanksgiving weekend and it, and it only made like $2 million. It dropped like a rock after two weeks. And by the time Christmas came around, it was out of theaters completely. So wow. it didn't even, yeah, you couldn't even go on Christmas Eve and watch this movie. And since then, obviously, it's it's something you watch every Christmas Eve. It's something my family watches every Christmas Eve. It's my dad and sister's favorite Christmas movie. Yeah, it's my favorite Christmas movie for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's everywhere. Uh, for those living under a rock who have never seen a Christmas story, it's really just kind of uh, much like it sounds like Hollywood Shuffle. It's just kind of like all these vignettes of Ralphie Parker reminiscing about the holiday season when he was nine years old. And it has a bunch of these different stories like, uh, him against the bullies and him trying to get this Red Rider BB gun for Christmas and the dad's struggle to make a turkey. <laughs> like, there's just, uh, there's so many different stories going on here. It is. And the lamp, the lamp is yeah, the best yes. one. I broke your lamp. And you hear the music get real dramatic. The leg lamp. Oh, and, and you know, this is a, a movie directed by Bob Clark, who directed a few cult classics. He directed Black Christmas from 1974, which is one of the first real holiday horror movies. And he directed oh, wow. the teenage sex comedy Porky's before mm. this. Um, he's also directed some non-cult classics like the Baby Geniuses movie, but we'll forgive him for that. <laughs> this one has inspired a lot of different things, but the ones that come to my mind, The Wonder Years, was definitely inspired by this. Yeah, yeah. Different time, though. I think it's 10 years because we're talking post-war baby boom for Christmas Story. Wonder Years was the 60s, I think. But similar yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. You know. um, I don't know if you know this, but the Christmas a Christmas Story is not the first in the series. There's actually like two prequels and five sequels to A Christmas wow. Story. And there's a remake that was just announced like two days ago as we record this that uh, Peter Billingsley is going to appear in for HBO Max. Wow. I mean, a lot of a lot of Christmas story stuff out there. Everybody has seen it. Everybody's at least heard of it. It is. Um, yeah, it's it's a good one. Did you have any honorable mentions on your list? Oh, man, it's like I have honorable mentions that aren't cult, but they're 80s. And then I have honorable mentions that are probably cult. So God, you, um, you could just list them off. I mean, like movies that wouldn't be cult would be like the a Soldier Story, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. But that's a drama. That's a very serious movie uh, with Adolf right, right. Caesar and Howard Rollins. Um, but as for cult, like you said, Disorderlies is cult. I actually thought it was hysterical. It was so bad it was good. <laughs> um, you know, like things like Breaking Two and Crush Groove. Of course, all the oh yeah, the hip hop, the hip hop movies. Um, but then Johnny Dangerously, which I mentioned. Uh, Lean on Me is not cult, but that's like a great '80s movie to me. Uh, that's the later '80s. Uh, Wildcats with Goldie Hawn. Um, that was also the first pairing of Wesley and Woody. Before White Men Can't Jump, they were together in, in Wildcats. Oh yeah, they were on the football team. They were on the football team. So that's the people think Wesley and Woody was White Men Can't Jump, but Wildcats was the first. You know, and it had Nipsey Russell in it, and LL Cool J made a cameo. Just a bizarrely bad film, but it's good. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. Um, I would say, uh, you know, the principal, 
obviously was another one of those stupid school movies. So mm-hmm. there was that. Um, and then another one that nobody's seen, I'm sure, from 1980, a movie called Coach of the Year. No, I have not <laughs> heard of that one. I've not. That one is very, 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 very rare. Um, it's about a football team, um, a football team at a, at a reform school for teenage boys called uh, St. Charles. Um, and it's like, just a bunch, it's really bad. It's a bunch of bad kids, but like, <laughs> ro- like, like, uh, you know, like Daphne Maxwell Reed is in there. Like, um, Robert Conrad, uh, plays the, uh, the lead. And then, um, this young actor named David Hubbard or David Rayner, he's in there. Um, but it's, it was like, I don't even think it was enough to get ranked on Rotten Tomatoes or anywhere else. Like it was basically the Conrad is like a paraplegic uh, coach who's, you know, working with kids. Yeah. And um, he comes, you know, Vietnam war, he was paralyzed. He comes home and he gets the uh, football coach at, you know, at a, um, like a state facility for teenagers. And, you know, they're like delinquents. Um, So it's like one of those, it's like, it falls into the savior bag like all those other movies but it was so raw yeah <laughs> and it was just it was just so far back it was kind of like mike posted the music it was like a um i don't even i have it it's on youtube in its entirety i don't even have a hard copy of that film so you know but i mean it's just it's, i wouldn't even say it's a good movie it's just campy it's just like right. any movies any movies that have bad teenage kids in it i like it <laughs> <laughs> like regardless well you probably like my uh one of my honorable mentions here heathers is uh one of my honorable mentions which is about heathers. bad high school it's like the the original mean girls almost oh yeah i remember that yeah that's a good one uh i also had student bodies on mine which is like a kind of a funny slasher movie uh, the poster has a cheerleader dead on a desk and her um her like sounding thing is sticking out of her mouth uh 1984 toxic avenger was on my honorable mentions which is just kind of yeah it's i wouldn't recommend it now (laughs) it's one of those ones you had to kind of grow up with i think yeah i i had another one like that um that i forgot to mention um so bad moving which is richard pryor a richard pryor film oh yeah where he plays arlo pear in advertising and then his, his crazy sadistic neighbor is either Dennis or Randy Quaid. Like one of the Quaid brothers is like this crazy neighbor and he's forced to move to Boise, Idaho from like Chicago and he doesn't want to live and work in Boise, Idaho. And they're like, the, his daughter is played by Stacey Dash. Like that oh. was her first film. And, you know, Stacey Dash wound up, you know, doing and saying some, some stupid stuff in later yeah, years. But back in job. the days... Yeah, she's a nut job. But back in the days of like Mo Money and all that stuff, like she was the hottie that everybody was with. And they don't remember. I was like, that's the girl from uh, Moving. But but this was like <laughs> af- this was like after Richard Pryor had dealt with, you know, drugs and stuff. So like he was trying to come back, but he never made it back. And his comeback attempt was moving. And it that thing must have made $30 at the box office. Man. <laughs> I remember but that I movie. I, don't, I haven't seen it, but I remember it. And I saw it in the theater. Yeah, Dana Carvey was in there too. Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah, they're crazy. He was like a split personality dude. Yeah, it's funny how you how you think of 
Stacy Dash as the girl from Moving, and I think of Stacy Dash as the girl from Clueless before she went bonkers. Before you went, yeah, or I, I don't even, I never saw Clueless. See, another movie, I've never mm. seen Clueless, but I've seen- oh, Clueless is good. It, and it's a classic I've never seen, but I've seen More Money. You know, with Damon with Damon Wayans and, and Stacey Dash was in move. I remember her from Moving and Mo Money. I, I and I never and I never saw Clueless because I live under a rock. <laughs> well, if you ever come out, it's a good one to watch. It's it's still it's still good today, even with the fact that she's in it. And uh, you'll be a little bit sad when you see Brittany Murphy since she has since passed away as well. Wow. Awesome lists. Jay, where can people go to listen to and see more of your work? Where do you want to direct people to go? You can go to Bandcamp. Um, that's, uh, well, the Do-Rights, T-H-E-D-U-R-I-T-E-S. So if you Google the Do-Rights, that's my band, that our Bandcamp comes up. And then jzone.bandcamp.com. Like both Bandcamps have all the Do-Rights stuff and all of my stuff. And then, uh, you know, we're on Spotify uh, website is govillaingo.com. Uh, YouTube channels JZone Music. Instagram JZone Don't IG. Twitter JZone Don't Tweet. Facebook JZone One Hundred One. I'm just trying to think. But if you just put J, if you put JZone in the in the Google engine or J Mumford, like you'll find everything will fall under the umbrella. Um, yeah. You know, like when, when, when I'm drumming, I go by both. So you kind of have to look up both to see all that kind of stuff. But all my social media stuff pops up in Google. So, you know, I'm, that's the best place to uh, keep up with what I got going on in Bandcamp, of course. All right, cool. I'm going to put links to all this in the show notes. So go check that stuff out. And I'm going to plug your YouTube channel real quick because you do some amazing drum work on there. Thank you. Just freestyling to songs. And uh, well, they're also on your Twitter and stuff, but. Man, you are a hell of a drummer. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Which 80s cult classics did me and Jay Zone miss? Let me know on social media, at Force5Pod on Twitter and at Force5Podcast on Instagram. And your comment might just make it to the show. If you liked what you heard, please review the show on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, they also now have written reviews. So please review the show and tell your friends to become list nerds with us. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some awesome 80s cult classics.